today. Is wearing a mask about to become the new normal? The mask is something we can buy. It's a product and we understand products as consumers. And we felt that we could sort of take it into our lives at this stage. But beyond that, it also seemed to symbolize the absolute chaos of the pandemic itself. I mean, we didn't know where, you know, how this was spreading or what the rules of the disease were. We were still discovering a lot of this stuff on the fly. And similarly, there was a confusion around whether to wear a mask or not, who had to wear it. So I think the confusion around the mask uh, mirrored quite nicely the confusion around the pandemic. When coronavirus spread from China, an aspect of daily life in East Asia came with it, wearing a mask. Looking around when I go out for my daily exercise now, I see all sorts of masks, very professional-looking ones, homemade cloth masks, all those flimsy blue disposable masks which look like they might be on their fourth or fifth outing. But why? The World Health Organization advises that masks are for healthcare workers, not the public. Yet countries around the world are making them mandatory. And this week in England, it's expected that the government will update their advice on face coverings, amidst concerns that it could lead to a shortage of masks for the people who need them most, those on the front line of this crisis. From The Guardian, I'm Rachel Humphreys. Today in Focus how the face mask became one of the most sought-after commodities in the world. Samantha Subramanian, you're a writer for The Guardian. This pandemic has been devastating for many of us, but some people have seen opportunities within it, and you spoke to one man who's done just that with masks. Tell me about him. Ovidio Olea is his name. Ovi, as I call him, uh, we've become friends on WhatsApp now. Ovi is uh, an entrepreneur in Hong Kong. He used to be a banker. He stopped doing that at some point and started up uh, a payments technology firm, which he's been running for a few years now. And so sometime in uh, late January, this is when the coronavirus was just starting to spread beyond Wuhan in China, Ovi thought he might get his staff masks. Of course, I read about the virus a little bit, and at that point, there wasn't much literature about it. But there, there is this article, I think it's one of the very first ones published, and it recommended the use of N95 respirators. And I thought, in my mind, that those are some sort of extremely complicated, complex, sci-fi, breathing apparatus. But then I just Googled that, and it turned out to be your, essentially your bog-standard dust protection mask that's used in construction and mining. And the problem in Hong Kong was twofold. One was, of course, because of the pandemic itself, there was a huge shortage of masks in the pharmacies that he was looking in. But then secondly, also last year, during the the big Hong Kong protests, a lot of the protesters had taken to wearing masks to defeat facial recognition technology. And as a result of that, China had stopped exporting masks to Hong Kong. Now, this is a real problem. In December or January, uh, China made close to half the world's masks. Since then, they've ramped up production to the extent that it's now around 85%. So if China is not sending you masks, you probably don't have any masks to begin with. And Ovi, as a result of uh, his search coming up fruitless, decided to buy masks from elsewhere in the world. He 
looked up mask suppliers around the world, and he finally found one company in South Africa that had half a million masks. And that was the start of Ovi's sort of dabbling in the mask industry. I wanted to order a thousand, which I thought would last us a year. And the, the nice gentleman there, he said, well, I actually have close to 500,000 in stock. And I was, oh, I don't know, <laughs> what am I going to do with so many masks? So I just, uh, I called up my, uh, my colleagues, the ones in the sales team, and I asked them, what's it like out there? Do people need masks? The answer was like, give me, give me. He seems to have a really, really, he's sort of like a wandering eye for business opportunities. And I think he saw that this was one of them. How easy was it for him to get those masks from South Africa? It was difficult. Uh, There were not many airlines flying. This was already sort of early February. So the number of cargo flights flying in and out of China were few. He finally found a Southeast Asian airline. Uh, He had to send them by truck to the airport in Johannesburg. At which point the company, North Safety Products, the South African firm, told him, well, look, you know, you have to be careful. There's a lot of people hanging around outside the factory gates waiting to bribe our drivers and take the cargoes of masks away. So Ovi hired a security firm. They were like, well, when do we go to this mission, this job? I said, well, you know, it's difficult with masks. And he said, what? Masks. And he said, okay, I'm going to have to fly down there myself. He hired a six-man team with pistols and rifles ride along in the truck to the Johannesburg airport. Once he got to the airport, it turned out that the airline uh, asked him for a supplementary 15,000 euros. You know, he grumbled to me that he might have even flown every single one of those boxes, business class or first class, for the the amount of money it ended up costing him. (laughs) So it took him, you know, two weeks to arrange all of this and to actually have the masks shipped to Hong Kong by mid-February. Do you think there was ever a point in this where he thought this had really escalated? You know, this had gone from one man wanting some masks for his company to him hiring men with weapons to protect a huge stash of masks being transported to Hong Kong. It's amazing, really. It is almost surreal. A security firm offered him, in addition to the rifles and the pistols, they offered him a vehicle with a machine gun strapped to it. Oh, my goodness. That that seemed to be too much, even for Ovi. <laughs> At least to me, he said, well, look, let's keep it reasonable. We're not invading Lesotho. <laughs> and it's just a symbol of uh, how crazy the mask world had gotten that everybody seems to be considering doing this as a matter of course. So what turned into a two-guy, couple-of-guns routine, let's follow a truck around, for half an hour from the factory to Durban Airport, ended up being six guys, two cars, 20 guns, and 14 hours on the road. Yes, this is very extreme. You know, why is it that a a businessman from Hong Kong might need to hire a machine gun to protect these this many masks? And, and, And what did he end up doing with half a million of them? Well, I, it, it turned out he had already signed up a buyers for a lot of them in Hong Kong. Um, so the masks arrived and then they were all, or almost all of them were picked up within six hours. He then decided to sort of wade into the mask industry, which meant that he bought another one million masks from North Safety Products. And then he waded in further up to his neck and he bought a mask making machine. Uh, that's capable of 
making 50 masks a minute. And so he is now, you know, he can quite accurately be described as a, as a mask mogul. Gosh, that is a crazy story, but uh, it sounds like he's potentially going to be making a lot of money. Why did he have to go to such great lengths to buy the masks? Can't manufacturers just keep making more and more of them? Well, the mask itself, I think, isn't really the problem. The problem is uh, the plastic inside the mask that acts as a filter for a lot of these particles and so on that you're supposed to guard against. The plastic is a very specific type of non-woven polypropylene. In in the industry, it's called melt-blown because that's the way the filaments of the plastic are made. And melt-blown is uh, an industry with a very stable sort of life until now. You know, there's no sort of high fluctuations in demand and supply. They know what they're going to be manufacturing for the next three or four or five years. A, a new setup of Melplone will cost millions of dollars to buy, months, if not years, to install and test and then begin manufacturing. So if a crisis like this comes along where suddenly the demand for Melplone shoots through the roof... The melt-blown industry is just incapable of handling it. There's only so much melt-blown out there. Ovi's story shows that there's clearly a huge market for masks. But when he first began selling that batch that he brought back from South Africa, who was buying them? So back in February, the country that was really buying uh, masks was China itself. And there was a reason for that, and the reason was a good one, which is that China was grappling with the most severe version of the epidemic that we had seen until then. China decided that what it would do was requisition not only a lot of the major mask output within its own borders, but also buy up masks from around the, around the world. So uh, the Chinese customs authorities uh, reckoned that roughly 2.02 billion masks had been imported into China in the month of February alone. And that is, we have to remember, in addition to the masks that were already being produced in China. So China was really shoring up the mask market at this point and just completely dominating it then? I think so. There was a figure that the Washington Post put out that uh, the US, through January and February, exported tens of millions of masks to China. Now, that's not a huge number, but given the mask shortage that would eventually crop up in the US itself, it's sort of telling that at that time, nobody was really thinking about masks elsewhere. And that's interesting because we know that by February, coronavirus cases were appearing in other countries, you know, around the world. When did other governments begin trying to secure their own mass supply? I think it sort of started maybe in the third, middle of February or the third week of February, I think. And of course, the, the frontline country in all of this was Italy, because Italy, ironically, had been among the countries that had sent a small shipment of masks to China. And then when it when the pandemic sort of flared within its own borders, they found that they actually didn't have enough of their own. And they started scrambling to secure mask supplies. Slowly as the pandemic spread westward, other countries decided they needed to figure out their stockpile as well. So just when the rest of the world started to get quite desperate for masks, China decided it was a good time to start re-exporting some of their, their own supplies and production. 
And how did other countries try to increase their mask supply? Did they go to, to great lengths to get hold of them? Well, some of the stories you hear are sort of outrageous. But, you know, the, the, the classic example, of course, is this incident reported uh, first in French media. But not all the orders are arriving safely. Of how, at an airport in Shanghai, a plane full of masks was ready to depart to France. It was on the tarmac, it was nearly ready to go. And then a posse of Americans uh, shows up on the runway, brandishing sort of wads of cash and offering to pay three times as much for the shipment of masks. And they bought it out before the plane left for France. Now, it's it's difficult, uh, as I said, to know exactly how much of this is true. You know, this episode for me was quite emblematic of how how extravagant these stories had become. The, the fact that there was a free-for-all in the mask market and countries and companies were both scrambling to get their hands on these supplies. Yeah, it certainly seems like there were almost no rules and it was just about who could physically be in the right place at the right time. And that was definitely the case, wasn't it, for Ireland and how they managed to secure a mask supply for themselves. That's right. I mean, Ireland is uh, one of those countries that has a small domestic production of masks, but clearly insufficient in in the face of a pandemic like this one. And they had found a seller in China, but they weren't able to find space on the the few scheduled flights that were already operating. So they went to Aer Lingus, uh, the Irish airline. And within a week, the airline had figured out, you know, a flight plan. They'd figured out visas for their staff. They'd figured out approvals for overflight across the European continent. Uh, Ordinarily, uh, Something like this would take six months because Aer Lingus had never flown to China before. Tina, Captain Tina Murray, I think you've been flying for 30 years, Aer Lingus. You did the Wednesday flight, I didn't did. you? What, what was that experience like? It was incredible. Different ending we've ever experienced. Um, from the time we arrived in the briefing, five pilots getting onto an aeroplane then with no cabin crew and empty. So everything felt different and there was an excitement about it. Um, It's incredible that they managed to do that so quickly, but it just goes to show how pressing this need for masks has become. Do you think this race to get them has escalated tensions between countries? In a number of ways, I think, you know, of course, the US's sort of bullying behaviour, we talked about some of that earlier. And we are not happy with China. We are not happy with that whole situation. There's also sort of a resentment, I think, particularly in the West, about how China has played this game, about how it first sort of seemed to buy out the mask market in February while it needed its own supplies, and then how it's now controlling the supply of masks back into the market when it doesn't quite need as many itself and when everybody else is in dire need of the supplies. In the EU, there's been a number of sort of new fault lines that have emerged or maybe old fault lines that have re-emerged. Italy has felt abandoned by initial decision of Germany and France. Germany and France quite early put into place laws that would allow them to appropriate any protective equipment passing through their own country. That meant that if there were masks going through Germany bound for Italy, they could be kept in Germany for domestic use. Those laws were revoked quite quickly, but I think Italy still carries a memory of that. Last night, the Civil Protection Department didn't have masks to distribute in this region. It's a good thing we created, and Moda Impressa prepared this batch of masks. This situation will go on for several months, and masks are a necessity for the entire industry. Other than individual sellers like Ovi, how 
how has this demand led to other alternative suppliers springing up? Are there other places that countries are able to get masks from? There's a number of established companies that have promised to make masks. You know, we've read accounts of Prada and BMW and Gucci and Burberry and so on promising to manufacture masks. But the scale of that is quite small. It's not it's not the kind of scale that we're talking about when we look to a country, a company like 3M in the US that makes the classic N95 masks. To develop a mask-making ecosystem that eventually meets the kind of demand that we're seeing around the world right now will take you know, a little bit longer. And as of now, people are having to depend upon the manufacturers that have already existed, dubious suppliers they can find in various corners of the internet, Chinese companies that seem to have sprung up overnight. It's quite a chaotic marketplace right now. Okay, so we've talked about how masks have become the symbol of this coronavirus crisis and that there's now this rush to make as many as possible as one by one countries are requiring people to wear them when they go outside. But why is that? What's the evidence that wearing a mask reduces the spread of infection? Right now, it should be stated that everything is in a state of flux and we don't know quite what the efficacy of the mask is. The mask has a number of gaps in its weave that are of a certain size. And so we know that that size, the size of the weave itself, is larger than the size of the virus. The virus is sort of 0.1 or 0.2 microns. A lot of the weave sizes that we're talking about is 0.3 microns. So in theory, a virus should be able to pass right through one of these holes. Now, what does happen in one of, in the best kind of masks, the N95s and other masks, is that the weave is is quite complex and interlayered, so it has a chance of stopping the virus, even if it is sort of hanging about in the air around you. The primary utility of the general purpose mask for the general population right now seems to be to keep from infecting other people. You might be coughing and you might not know you have the virus, but it may sort of be spraying itself out of your mouth uh, nonetheless. And so in those cases, it's clearly useful to have a mask. I think that's sort of the consensus right now. But there's uh, still no consensus as to whether the virus just hangs about in the air, ready to be breathed in if you were even you know, around the virus without anyone else in sight. So a lot of this stuff will, I think, come to light over the next few months. But the World Health Organization have not been consistent in their advice on this, have they? They haven't, but I think it's, you know, I think they're playing a difficult balancing game here as well. I mean, this pandemic is new, as I said. So when they first issued their mask advisory back in February, we were only a month into the pandemic. It was not clear as yet how the disease worked, how the disease spread. You know, we were learning all of this on the fly, so to speak. And the second thing, of course, is I think that the WHO would have been aware that to recommend that everybody wear masks would have been to spark the kind of run on the mask market that would make it really difficult for healthcare workers to access masks. But the other point is something that doctors have made as well, which is that masks give you a false sense of security. You go out into the world wearing a mask, thinking that you're safe and that you're keeping others safe, and maybe you indulge in the kind of behaviors or the kind of gatherings uh, that uh, aren't very safe at all, particularly in the early stages of these, these reopenings when the disease is still very much out there in society. After this, how masks might become part of our daily lives for the foreseeable future. And we catch up with Ovi to find out about his next business move. 
Medical masks like this one cannot protect against the new coronavirus when used alone. WHO only recommends the use of masks in specific cases. The WHO have said that while wearing a mask could limit the spread of the disease, there is no evidence that doing so could prevent healthy people from picking up infections. But that hasn't stopped some countries from making them mandatory. It is now compulsory to wear a face mask when you leave the house in Slovakia and the Czech Republic, while in Germany, most states require people to cover their faces in shops and on public transport, with some issuing fines for those who don't comply. In the UK, politicians are divided. So the Scottish Government is now recommending the use of face coverings in these limited circumstances as a precautionary measure. Last Tuesday, the Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon advised people to wear face coverings in public. And on the same day in the Commons, Michael Gove revealed that the government is stockpiling masks. Uh, confirm that my honourable friend, uh, Lord Agnew, uh, the Joint Cabinet Office and Treasury Minister, has launched a domestic uh, effort to ensure that we produce just such masks, and that is part of the broader effort that Lord Dayton is leading. But in the afternoon, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, confirmed that the government's position on wearing masks hadn't changed. As opposed to the weak science on face masks, there is very clear science on social distancing and the importance of it. So that is our absolute priority. And then on Thursday, Boris Johnson signalled a U-turn on face coverings. There's part of coming out of the lockdown. I, I do think that uh, face coverings uh, will be useful, uh, both for epidemiological uh, reasons, uh, but also uh, for giving people confidence uh, that they can go uh, back to work. And so you're going to be hearing, uh, with this demand for masks growing worldwide by the day, does this mean it's becoming harder for health services to get hold of them and to also buy masks that meet safety standards? At this particular point, it's difficult. Um, I know for a fact that in the US, where the need is particularly dire, there have been decisions that hospital administrators have had to make about whether to buy masks off the internet from vendors who they don't really know all that well, who may not uh, be selling masks that are certified by the Food and Drug Administration of the US, the FDA. And they have to balance this with the fact that some mask may be better than no mask at all. And so there's there's a lot of this kind of decision-making. There, there was a hospital in Eindhoven in the Netherlands that I read about that had to turn down a huge shipment of Chinese-made masks because they were substandard. Has this led to a sort of a black market developing online for masks? I think so. I mean, I've, I've read and I've talked to a researcher in the US who told me that, that in a lot of the drug rings that he tracks online, on Facebook in particular, people who sell fentanyl and other illicit drugs, people are now selling masks because this is the this is where the market opportunity is at the moment. And, you know, uh, illicit sellers of products will continue to sell whatever it is that there's a demand for. 20 years ago, it was a tech boom. Um, 10 years ago, there was a finance boom. Maybe this is what it is now. Maybe it's just a mask boom and we all have to get into it. What does this race for masks show us about the societies that we live in? I think the mask reveals a lot, a lot not only about the pandemic, but the world into which the pandemic arrived. There's all sorts of inequalities of trade and wealth and influence that are coming to the fore as this mask scramble has has progressed. Uh, we've seen how in an open marketplace, the highest bidder will get whatever he or she or it wants, regardless of what the requirements are. So healthcare workers are not getting masks, possibly because there are other people out there who are hoarding them, outbidding them, 
diverting them for other purposes. So the the iniquities of the the free market, so to speak, are really one of the reasons why there's such a deficit of masks and other protective gear where they're most needed. Samantha, do you think now that wearing masks every day, something which has always felt very strange in the UK, do you think now this will become our new normal for the foreseeable future? I think there's going to be huge mask advisories in play in any public space, restaurants, hotels, airlines, airlines in particular. We'll all have masks at some point sitting in our sock drawers, waiting to go every time we go out. We've all assumed that there will be at some point a moment in time where billions of us are going to need masks anyway, because pollution and climate change will make that necessary. What this pandemic has done is sort of sneaked masks onto our faces from a completely unexpected angle. We weren't expecting to have to wear masks for the foreseeable future because of a disease, because of a virus, and yet that's where we are now. And I think it'll turn into a it'll turn into a civic duty. I think. I mean, if you want to sort of keep your country safe in a way, this is what you have to do. Um, the Italian prime minister, when he announced sort of the phrase the phases of the reopening of Italy over the next few months, he he made a really interesting sort of appeal to emotion and patriotism rather than logic. He said, "If you love Italy, uh, follow the rules." And I think it's going to become very similar with masks as well. I think if you uh, if you want to keep your fellow Britons safe or your fellow Americans safe or wherever in the world you are, uh, you will follow the advisor to wear masks. It'll become a civic duty like voting, in a sense. Samant, since you've written your piece, have you managed to catch up with Ovi to find out how his mask business is going? The last time I spoke to Olea was, uh, I think, a few days ago. It worked out great in the end and I kind of liked it. His mask machine had arrived. He had set it up in a, in a space he had rented, which is an old bottling plant in Hong Kong. Uh, he hadn't started manufacturing yet because he wants to sell the kind of masks that are medical grade. And to do that, he will need to set up a clean room and a sterile production facility and get it inspected and licensed. So that takes a little time. He expects to start manufacturing masks around the middle of summer. Uh, but he isn't worried because like a lot of us, I think he thinks masks will be will be in our future very much. And so if and when uh, the machine gets going out there in Hong Kong, he will always have plenty of customers to sell to. Thank you to Samantha Subramanian for speaking to me for this episode and to the mask mogul himself, Ovidio Alea. You can find Samantha's long read on this story and more of his brilliant writing at theguardian.com. You can also listen to the Science Weekly podcast, which is answering all of your coronavirus questions three times a week. Today's episode was produced by Serena Barker-Singh and the sound design was by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back with you tomorrow.